0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well we continue our series The Triumph of the Lamb today with a message entitled "Hallelujah." So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 to 5 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I want you, if you can, to think about some time in your life when you were especially happy. And I don't know, perhaps something wonderful happened. Maybe it was your wedding day, the day you graduated from university, or the day your parents told you how proud they were of you and how much joy you have brought into their lives. I mean, perhaps it's the day something you wanted so much actually happened. Perhaps it was the moment when you won that gymnastics championship, or perhaps your soccer team won the regional championship. I mean, whatever it was that made you happy, I am fairly certain that you expressed yourself. I mean, perhaps you cheered, or maybe you shouted, or perhaps you gave everyone high fives, and maybe you just couldn't stop murmuring, fantastic. But this I know for certain. The greatest joys in your life have always resulted in a response. If something great happens, you can't be silent. Your very humanity demands more than a smile, but some kind of an emotional outburst. We have in our study of Revelation come to the 19th chapter, and just to give a bit of a history, let's review Revelation 17 and 18. These are the chapters that have dealt with Babylon, which, as we saw, is the name given to the capital city of the empire of the Antichrist. But because John refers to this city as Babylon, we are called upon to remember that Babylon is much more than a once in future city. Ever since human beings fell into sin, Babylon has always existed. It's the civilization of evil and violence and power and enormous wealth all achieved through a love of self and a hatred of God. As long as Babylon is in this world, the final appearing of the kingdom of God will not be among us. But then through a prophetic revelation, John is taken to a time sometime in the future when Babylon will be overthrown never to rise again. God's justice will be vindicated, and the long night of persecution and blasphemy comes to an end. God, the great and terrible judge of the earth, rises up and with violence, hurls Babylon down never to rise again. And what can such a moment bring about? It's as if our fists pump into the air and we jump from our seats and we shout, yes, finally. Ah, But that's not quite it. The word that's spoken is not amazing or fantastic or even, oh yeah, baby. No, the word that's spoken is a word that's found only in the book of Psalms, and then only right here in Revelation 19. It's it's the word Hallelujah. Are you disappointed? See, here's what I think. Maybe you don't understand just how significant the word Hallelujah actually is. Perhaps, you know, when you hear the word, you think of Leonard Cohen's famous song Hallelujah, which, you know, amazingly has become a kind of a hymn to some folks. It's as if they hush their lips and think how lovely that moment is, that is, when Cohen sings hallelujah. You know, I'm not sure I want to spend any time giving a commentary on what Cohen meant in that song, but it's surely a confluence of, you know, spirituality and sensuality. I mean, that's what Cohen meant by the word, but that's not how the word is used in the Bible. There are a grouping of psalms, that is, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, which have been given the title the Hallel Psalms. Each one of those seven psalms are about Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. So they tell about the fact that the idols of the nations were nothing, but God delivered his people. And they remember everything from Passover to the time that the sea looked and fled at the approach of God's people Israel. I mean, what do you do? When you've been in slavery for hundreds of years and then a series of miracles devastates the Egyptians and you pass through the Red Sea. for I mean, for heaven's sake, the Egyptian army is drowned in that same sea. And now you're on the way to the promised land. I mean, what do you do then? See, the Hallel Psalms say that you've got to dance and you've got to sing and you've got to worship and shout. There are 11 Psalms that begin with the word hallelujah. You know, for instance, Psalm 106 begins that way. It simply says, hallelujah. And then it calls on God's people to give thanks to Yahweh. And why would they do that? Well, listen to Psalm 106, 9 to 12. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. Oh, yeah, baby. They not only sang his praise, I'm pretty sure they sang as loud as their voices could sing. And that's what hallelujah is all about. Yeah, I know the word simply means praise Yahweh. But if that's all we say, that sounds, well, it's just a tad reserved. It's, it's a bit understated. See, hallelujah is spoken on the best day of your life. And the reason it's the best day of your life is because God, your God, has done something that has made you jump from your seat and pump your fist into the air and cheer loudly. So you sing, hallelujah. Now, what Revelation 19 describes makes the exodus from Egypt what sounds like a tempest in a teapot. I mean, it makes it sound like almost nothing. Or let me give you another example. Let's say you are one of the blind men that Jesus healed. You're told that the Son of God is passing this way and you've been blind from birth, and so you shout out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now everyone says, you know, be quiet, he's coming right here to you now. And then he touches your eyes and then something you, you couldn't have imagined, sights, colors, light, movement, I mean, a beauty that reaches down to your soul and awakens in you a world that you had only hoped was there. And what do you do? You jump up, you pump your fist, you shout, praise God, hallelujah. But that too is but a, a tempest in a teapot. Now imagine a day when Babylon, the city of man that entrenches the world in suffering and sorrow, Imagine when she is finally overthrown, never to rise again. At that moment, God's kingdom comes to earth, and the day of evil is now permanently over. And what's to be said? And that is what greets us in Revelation 19, 1-5. So, let's read it now. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now, if you've listened closely, you're going to find that this refrain of hallelujah is sung actually by three different groups. The first group is the one we find in verses 1 to 3, which are a part of that great multitude which is in heaven. And the second is in verse 4. It's also in heaven but it's sung by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. But the final grouping is the call for the entire company of all of God's people, the redeemed of the Lord, to sing hallelujah. So let's have a look at who's praising. The first is the great multitude in heaven, and like so many other places in Revelation, you have disagreement as to who this group might be. One interpretation says, well, this group must be the same group as the one that's spoken of back in Revelation 7 verse 9. So, let me read that to you. That passage says, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. And so from this vantage point, this is either the rapture church of Jesus from before the tribulation, or it's the final church come home after Jesus returns and defeats the antichrist. So that's one possibility. A second possibility is that this multitude is the full number of angels. Another is that this is both the angels and it's those who have died and are in heaven before Christ returns. Now, I won't answer the question here because Revelation doesn't make that matter plain. I'm content to say that whoever is in heaven at that moment witnessing the utter and swift collapse of Babylon will jump up and shout as if unable to do anything else. They will say, this, this is how great our God actually is. Now look carefully at the passage. The great throng in heaven is not now rejoicing over Babylon's demise. They're rejoicing because the judgments of God are true and just. They're shouting, yes, isn't this our God? I'm overwhelmed with delight. When God acts according to his character, I can't get enough of the true and just actions of God. Hallelujah, because the God who exists has overwhelmed me with his glory hallelujah, this is an awesome day. I'm happier now than I can ever imagine.
0: Dr. Neufeld wrote, there is a line near the end of the book of Revelation that sounds altogether intriguing. Revelation 21 5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, all things. What can that mean? Well, according to the book of Revelation, this present world will die. Now that's not just a theological statement, it's a statement meant to bring comfort to suffering Christians. This month, Dr. Neufeld presents the final volume of his study on the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Focusing on the final five chapters, you'll be uniquely engaged and encouraged to discover the incredible plan God has for eternity. And for this month only, we want to make the final volume available to you for only $19 or the entire four volume series for $75. Both offers include shipping and taxes. So call today for the triumph of the lamb at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: The overwhelming cause for the celebration in heaven is that God has shown his justice by avenging his people, the chosen servants of Jesus. And this I find overwhelming. See, I think that heaven is eagerly awaiting the day when God vindicates his servants. Heaven longs for justice for the church of Jesus and for the individual lives of the servants of Christ. Whenever God's people are persecuted, I can imagine all of heaven sitting up and wondering if this will be the time when God rouses himself and comes to the aid of his people. Of course, there are many times in history when God has rescued his people. I'm constantly amazed at how often the persecuted church will speak of moments of God's grace. And I know this, you know, when the first council of Nicaea met in Asia Minor in 325, they met to discuss the nature and being of Jesus. Was he a created being as the heretic Arius wanted the church to believe? Or was he God of very God, one with the Father? Well, you know the outcome of that discussion, the bishops who went to Nicaea decided with a plain meaning of scripture that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, one with the Father, the uncreated creator of all things. But that's only part of the drama of that moment. See, did you know that almost every single Christian bishop that attended that meeting bore the marks of persecution, some burn marks on their body, others missing an eye. Great many were limping. All of them had been beaten and persecuted for their faith. They had been in a great battle for their faith, and they were prevailing. These were men of faith, and they were men of courage. But now, for the first time, the Roman emperor had announced that the day of persecution was over. The church would now be protected by Rome. Now, I know many have wondered about the motives of the Roman emperor, Constantine. Had he been genuinely converted or did he do it for political reasons? And, you know, others have argued about how he may have subverted the church after that. But putting all those questions aside, see, I have no doubt on this day at Nicaea, there was a great uproar in heaven of praise. God had delivered his church from that Babylon, Rome, that had sought to kill the church. But the church had survived and thrived, and now God had saved her from the hand of her persecutors. I have no doubt that at that moment, there was an outcry of hallelujahs in heaven, just such an event. But that was temporary. The church faced new challenges and fresh battles with the spirit of Babylon, and persecution would rise again. No, the edict of toleration, which freed the church from persecution, was only temporary. These moments are like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, only to die again. But in that moment when God rises not only to destroy Babylon, but to avenge his people, that moment that's described here in Revelation 19, all of heaven will suddenly rise to their feet, there's a moment unlike every other moment, for Babylon will never rise again. And heaven will say, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You know, that word salvation here in this context is not speaking about personal salvation. It's rather that God has safeguarded his entire plan for this earth. He created this earth for his glory. It's an outward expression of his greatness. And he has promised that one day the entire earth would be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And on the day of Babylon's destruction, God will have moved to protect and defend his purpose in the created order. God has saved his purpose for this earth. Heaven will cry out hallelujah. The second word is glory. Glory belongs to God. That is to say that all of God's attributes are perfect. There's no flaw in any of them, only beauty. Glory is a word that sums up God's perfection. It's a statement about the beauty and the worth of God. And when God destroys Babylon, heaven will say that glory belongs to God in the sense that this moment demonstrates all the attributes of God. And finally, that power belongs to God, it seems, in this overthrow of Babylon. You know, God is able to fulfill all that he desires. The only thing that kept Babylon going is not because God was unable to overthrow her. He could have done that at any moment. What kept her going was the infinite wisdom of God who knew the best time for her overthrow. It's interesting to me that after describing this uprising of praise in heaven that John describes specifically the activity now of first of the 24 elders and then also of the four living creatures. Let's remind ourselves of who these beings are. See, Even though they're in heaven, John makes specific mention of their activity in that they are also shouting hallelujah. So who are the elders and these creatures? Well, I discussed that matter, I mean, a long time ago when I dealt with Revelation 4, in which we encountered both the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And I said back then, and still believe it now, that from my perspective, the 24 elders are God's counsel of his leading holy angels. And some of you might remember 1 Kings 22, verse 19, in which it was the prophet Micaiah who said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Or you might remember Psalm 89, verse 7, which calls God a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of his holy ones. And that refers to the angels. So from my perspective, the 24 elders refer to the highest ranking of the angels that surround the throne. No doubt they are the great commanders who oversee the ranks of angels who constantly do the bidding of God. But because of their unique position of authority, they surround God's throne and they are ever before Him. Well, then who are the four living creatures? Well, there's so much to be said about them, including their wings, and the fact that they're covered with eyes so that they're always watchful and they're always ready for service. And we spend a great deal of time defining them, but I did that earlier, and suffice it to say here that from my vantage point, the four living creatures are also a form of angels. Whoever the four living creatures are, they are among the highest order of angels who surround the throne of God. What that means to say to me is that the praise that surrounds the throne is not contained among the host of heaven. The most exuberant among those who are praising are those beings that have been given the highest of all possible ranks in heaven. As heaven erupts in hallelujah, the mightiest among them encourages heaven on. It shouts to them, amen, hallelujah. You know, it's often said that in the realm of human affairs, the more closely we get to know someone, the less special they seem to us. You know, from a distance, we stand in awe of our heroes, but up close, well, they look overwhelmingly human. They have all the same failures that we all have, and and the shine just seems to go away. Well, clearly this is not true with the one who's seated on the throne. His closest troops are most overwhelmed by his glory. When heaven erupts, they jump from their chairs, encouraging the host of heaven on. God is to be praised, they shout. His salvation and power and glory, seen in the destruction of Babylon, makes us even more overwhelmed if that were possible. But then our passage is still not done. Verse 5 says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. You know, at first, since this voice comes from the throne, you might think this must be the voice of God. But clearly it's not, for the voice says, Praise our God. That is to say, the one who speaks these words from the throne worships the same God that we do. But this voice calls out to the church of Jesus also to the ones who are on earth. They're urging us on, saying, you also need to shout. You need to be deeply happy. Hallelujah needs to come from lips that shout his praise. When I think about this passage, two thoughts come to mind. The first is a thought that comes from C.S. Lewis, who said, joy is the serious business of heaven. If it is the serious business of heaven, it must be for us as well. I find that intellectual Christians who exhibit no outbursts of emotion are not filled with the life of God. As much as some of us delight in heaping scorn on those who, are at least in our opinion, show too much emotion, might I say it here? That our God must not simply be studied. He must be enjoyed. He must stir our hearts with emotion if there are no eruptions of praise brought on by deep joy. I fear we are barren of the life of God. See, and the second thought that comes to mind from this passage are Jesus' words found in in Matthew 5 or 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus urges us not to be content with injustice or to get used to a world that does not hunger and thirst after him. Jesus wants each of us to develop a holy restlessness that finds the systems of this world to be an offense. We are never to be satisfied when we're here. Indeed, from one perspective, there should be growing in the life of every believer a deep offense at this world. We should find Babylon unacceptable. And the deeper is our anger with unrighteousness, the greater will be our joy when our great God, violently hurls Babylon to the
0: ground. Hallelujah. Thanks so much, John. You know, I was thinking as you named this message Hallelujah, it it dawned on me, you know, that the English language sort of underwhelms the power of some of these words. I think the word awesome when we were in reference to God, and now this word Hallelujah. We really miss out on the power of these words, don't we?
1: Yeah, Yeah, boy, Ben, that's such a good point. I mean, if we have overused superlatives. I mean, that's—I just think that's the, that's the case. And, and because of that, we have no superlatives left. Hallelujah is a superlative. I mean, it is reserved for these moments of great exuberance. I mean, it's God has done things that are so over the top that our hearts are just bursting, and we don't know how to say anything more significant than Hallelujah. So you know perhaps you know we have to uh, you know get our own language in order so that so that we still have superlatives left and and remember hallelujah is a great superlative
0: thanks so much john remember to join us again next week right here on back to the bible canada where we teach the bible Truth and Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth and Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth and Life magazine. If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today.